Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Just a warning that due to the nature of the subject matter I advise young children and those with a fragile disposition not to listen. I'm really sorry. Today we'll be talking about an event that happened 200 years ago, back in 1821. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 3rd of February, Elizabeth Blackwell, abolitionist and women's rights activist, was born She died in 1910. She was featured in a previous show from last year, if you want to find out more about her. And in April, John Constable finished his painting, The Haywing. On the 19th of July, George IV is crowned King of the United Kingdom. His estranged wife, Caroline of Brunswick, is turned away from the coronation ceremony, though. Elizabeth Fry and others established the British Ladies' Society, for promoting the reformation of female prisoners, an early example of a national women's organisation. And on August the 10th, Missouri is admitted as the 24th state of America. But on Friday the 13th of April, 200 years ago, John Horwood was the first person to be hanged at Bristol New Jail, above the gatehouse entrance, three days after his 18th birthday, for the murder of Eliza Balsam. John Horwood was an 18-year-old miner from Hannam and the 10th child of Thomas Horwood. He was in a relationship with girlfriend Eliza Balsam, which ended in 1820. Horwood apparently swore that he would mash her bones to pieces if he ever saw her with another man. In a deposition that Eliza made before she died, she recounted that John would often make improper suggestions to her, and each time she rejected him, he would become angry and threaten her. During Christmas 1820, he threw something over her that burnt her clothes. Luckily, she wasn't hurt. After that, he would continuously follow her and try to get her alone so that he could threaten her, or worse. At the end of January 1821... Liza was walking alone near Hannam when she saw him approaching her. 
She was so scared she ran as fast as she could back home, with him following her all the way. Her mother heard him swear and scream that the next time he would catch her and smash her bones all to pieces. The mother asked why he threatened her daughter, and he once again swore on his maker that he would kill her and anyone she was with. Word of the Week And for this week's word, it's my honour to give you... Expurge Factor An expurge factor is anything that wakes you up. This may simply be your alarm clock, in which case it's time to hit the snooze button. Or it could be the dustman, or a milkman, or even those Amazon drivers out there at the moment. In early February 1821, John Horwood saw Eliza with her new boyfriend, William Waddy, on the hillside near her West Country cottage, and threw a stone which struck her on the right temple. She screamed out, Oh Lord! I am killed! and fell down. The stone only caused minor injury for which she was initially treated at home by her friends with ointments and a bread poultice. She was well until the 31st of January, but was suffering from headaches and vomiting, so she walked from Kingswood to the Bristol Royal Infirmary to get the wound dressed properly. Surgeon Richard Smith declared that it had become infected and had found an abscess under the bones of the skull and decided to operate. In the early 19th century, this meant trepanning, drilling a hole in the patient's head to relieve pressure. The trepanning caused an abscess and four days later Eliza died on the 17th of February 1821. Dr Smith then immediately declared it was not his fault but it was John Horwood who had killed her and reported John to the police who arrested him and tried the young man for murder. The trial took place at the Star Inn in Bedminster on the 11th of April 1821 and Smith testified against him. During the trial though The defence claimed that the abscess might have been caused by the unclean dressings being put on the wound, but this theory was never pursued. John Horwood was tried and sentenced to hang at the new jail prison, and it was declared his remains were then to be given over to the surgeons at the Bristol Royal Infirmary for their dissection classes. For the three weeks before the hanging, the illiterate John was quite convinced that he would be acquitted. The Reverend Roberts visited John three times, and until the last, John was quite positive that he would be released. John exclaimed that he would lead a different life when he came out, much more like his pious older brother. He told the Reverend, How often has my mother wept over me and offered to take me to chapel? That I had done like my brother. I rejected God, and he has overtaken me in sin. On the morning of the execution, the Reverend asked John about a conversation they had had about a broken heart, and what John had meant by it. The reply was, I mean a heart that could repent and feel. I wish mine could feel more. Before the trial, mine mine was so hard, I felt nothing. Now, I am anxious for mercy. Had I escaped... I should have returned to my old practices because my heart is in a different state to what it is now. 
hanging in those days was not a quick process. The long drop method had yet to be developed. This used the victim's own weight combined with a fall to break their necks, creating a mercifully unconscious death. Instead, the condemned bound hand and foot were dropped through a trap door on a short rope to be strangled to death over a period of minutes, usually accompanied with much writhing around. Finding himself within the oppressive confines of the condemned cell, John Hallward abandoned his previous indifference to his victim and reverted to his chapel upbringing. He confessed. Lord, thou knowest that I did not mean then to take away her life, merely to punish her. Though I confess that I made up my mind some time or other to murder her. Before the hanging, the sheriff came to the cell with the order but couldn't speak for a while as he was so emotional and had tears in his eyes. The reverend suggested that they pray one last time in the privacy of the death room instead of in front of the baying crowds. Everyone in that room couldn't help but be overcome with emotion. The sheriff, Mr Humphreys, the governor of the jail, and the officers were all bathed in tears. John was then taken up to the platform on the gatehouse, bound and told to give the signal when he was ready. He was so absorbed in praying that he didn't realise how long had passed. But when he did, he gave the signal. The platform fell like lightning and his soul fled to eternity. There was a huge crowd there for this event and such was the appeal of these open-air executions that some parts of the crowd risked being pushed into the unfenced New Cut River by their sheer weight of numbers. Book of the Week The book this week is called The Autobiography of an Execution by David R. Dow. It's a spellbinding true crime narrative where Dow takes us inside the prisons, inside the complicated minds of judges, inside execution administration chambers, into the lives of death row inmates, some shown to be innocent, others not and even into his own home where the toll of working on these gnarled and difficult cases is perhaps inevitably paid, sheds insight into unexpected phenomena, how even religious lawyers and justices can evince deep-rooted support for putting criminals to death, and makes palpable the suspense that clings to every word and action when human lives hang in the balance. news today, a man from Somerset built a model of Mount Everest for his son. His son asked, is it to scale? And the man replied, no, it's to look at. After the execution, a group of friends and family lay in wait, hoping to prevent the conclusion of the boy's sentence, his dissection. They planned to ambush the cart carrying his body and spirit it away by boat back to his hometown of Hannam. His body was requisitioned by the very same Dr Smith for medical research, who had operated on Eliza and then said that it was John that killed Eliza. However, the jail authorities thwarted this plan by delivering the corpse under cover of night on the 14th of April to the Bristol Royal Infirmary, where the surgeon, Richard Smith, carried out the dissection in front of 80 people 
at one of his medical classes that lasted two hours. But there was much controversy, as the family of John Horwood had hired a solicitor to try and get John's remains back for a proper burial. The solicitors Brown and Watson wrote to Dr Smith before the election, asking if the dissection could be avoided and the body returned to his aged father. Dr Smith replied that he felt it was his duty, which he owed his fellow citizens, as public officers, to go ahead. Not deterred, the solicitors asked once more, and Dr Smith once again replied that both he and his colleagues saw no reason to change their minds. He even said that the father had been in his office pleading and crying but to no avail. In an even more gruesome twist, Smith had the boy's skin preserved and tanned. A bookbinder was engaged to put Horwood's skin around a ledger containing the account of the murder he carried out, the trial and the execution. Its black cover was embossed with a skull and crossbones at each corner and on its front bore the gilded legend Curtis Vera Johannes Horwood, which translated means the skin of John Horwood. A bill for £10 from the binder sits inside its covers. For years, the macabre book lay within the vaults of the BRI and then in the Bristol Record Office, ironically located at the opposite end of the Cumberland Road where John Horwood's life was ended for him. This document, a book of skin, is now kept in the Emshed Museum in Bristol. It is embossed with a gallows motif. The practice of anthropodermic bibliopegy is known to have been practiced since the 17th century and it was common to use the murderer's skin in this manner during the 17th and 18th centuries. The surgeon, Richard Smith, kept the skeleton at his home until his death, showing it off to guests when it was passed to the Bristol Royal Infirmary and later to Bristol University. The skeleton was retained and most recently was kept hanging in a cupboard at Bristol University, with the noose still around its neck. Mary Halliwell tracked her Horwood ancestors down to a parish near Bristol. She never expected to find a real skeleton under lock and key in a cupboard. It turns out John was the youngest brother of Mary's three times great-grandfather, Thomas Horwood. And it was Mary who had Horwood finally buried alongside his father on the 13th of April 2011 at 1.30pm, exactly 190 years to the hour after he was hanged. The funeral ceremony in Hannam was attended by more than 50 mourners. John had composed a poem before his death, which was made public after his hanging. The poem read... John Horwood is my wretched name, and Hannam gave me birth. My previous time has been employed in rioting and mirth. Eliza, oh Eliza dear, thy spirit always fled, and thy poor mangled body lies now numbered with the dead. Cursed is the hand that gave the blow, and cursed the fatal stone, which made thy precious life blood flow, for it has me undone. Self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. 
In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living despite not having a driving licence, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are, so pretty much everywhere. John Howard's book in the M-Shed is only one of a number of macabre objects residing in Bristol. Another notorious one is in the Hatchet Inn, which is a historic public house situated on Frogmore Street in the centre of Bristol, dating from 1606 and reputed to have been patronised by Blackbeard himself. It is a Grade II listed building. The name is thought to originate from the axes or hatchets that the local woodsmen used in Clifton Woods. It is the oldest still operating public house in Bristol, though while it was still operating, the Landoga Trow was of a similar age. When you walk in the door, the inside feels lopsided and poorly planned out, with a maze of small rooms, low ceilings and vintage wooden beams. There's a similarly eccentric beer garden outside, which in centuries gone by was used to host bear baiting and bare knuckle fighting. The hatchet was indeed frequented by noted fighters of their day, Tom Cribb was born at Hannam in 1781. Jem Mace and Tom Sayer were all Bristol men who used to practice in the gardens around the inn. But we're talking about the 18th century door to the Hatchet Pub, which is rumoured to be lined with layers of leathered human skin from executed criminals beneath its paint. In 1956, an American tourist offered the modern-day equivalent of $15,000 for it. The offer was declined. Another book with a sinister background is made from the skin of the infamous murderer, William Burke. Rather than dig up corpses to sell for dissection to the private Edinburgh Anatomy School run by Robert Knox, Burke, along with his partner William Hare, began killing people instead. They sold more than 15 bodies before they were discovered. Up the close and down the stair, but and bend with Burke and Hare, Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief. Knocks the boy that buys the beef. Following the trial, Hare turned King's evidence against his partner in crime and was granted immunity. William Burke was executed on January the 28th, 1829, in front of a crowd possibly as large as 25,000. Views from windows in the tenements overlooking the scaffold were hired at prices ranging from 5 to 20 shillings. As punishment for his crimes... He was publicly dissected by the anatomist Professor Alexander Munro in the Anatomy Theatre of the University's Old College on the 1st of February. Police had to be called when large numbers of students gathered demanding access to the lecture, for which a limited number of tickets had been issued. A minor riot ensued. Calm was restored only after one of the university professors negotiated with the crowd 
that they would be allowed to pass through the theatre in batches of 50 after the dissection. During the procedure, which lasted for two hours, Monroe dipped his quill pen into Burke's blood and wrote, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Grizzly souvenirs started to appear in Edinburgh, with books and wallets made from Burke's skin being sold on the streets. A pocket book made from Burke's skin is on display at Surgeons Hall Museums, and Burke's skeleton was given to the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School, where, as at 2018, it still remains. Another grizzly exhibit is in the Carbon County Museum in Rawlins, Wyoming, America. The home to a number of terrific exhibits that recall the area's roots in the American West. But there is one that tends to garner the most attention from visitors. A pair of shoes made out of the skin of the late 1800s outlaw Big Nose George. Big Nose George Parrot was a bandit, murderer and horse thief whose crimes came to an end in 1881. Parrot and his gang killed a pair of lawmen in Wyoming after a failed train robbery, after which he went on the run for two years. Despite the bounty on Parrot's head, according to an account in the book Legendary Locals of Rawlins, at one point he began drunkenly bragging about having killed the Wyoming lawman, which eventually led to his capture in 1880. Parrot was found guilty and sentenced to hang, but as the date drew nearer, he managed to remove his shackles and beat up his jailer in an attempt to escape. He was scuppered by the jailer's wife, who stopped him at gunpoint. But when locals found out about this attempt, they formed a mob and burst into the jail, dragging Parrot out onto the street. The mob attempted to hang Parrot from a telegraph pole, but Parrot just fell to the ground. The second attempt failed too as the rope was too short to break his neck, and he managed to free his hands and shimmy up the pole out of reach of the mob. The third time they tried was a success, but had been so violent that the rope had rubbed his ears clean off. Physicians John Osborne and Thomas McGee took the corpse from the mortuary that night to do experiments to find out about the source of his criminality. Osborne kept the body in a whiskey barrel in an office for a year during that time. At some point, Osborne sent parts off to a tannery and commissioned a pair of shoes to be made as well as a medical bag and a coin purse from Parrot skin. Several years later, Dr Osborne was elected Governor of Wyoming. At his 1893 inauguration, he wore the shoes that a dozen years earlier had been a man. The top of Parrot's skull was given to McGee's assistant, Lillian Heath, who kept it her entire life, using it as an ashtray and a doorstop. It can now be found in the Iowa Railroad Museum. Heath would later become Wyoming's first female physician. Once finished with, the barrel and its macabre contents was buried and forgotten, until it was uncovered in 1850 by construction workers. Apparently there's a coin purse made from Parrot's scrotum, which horrified later volunteers at the museum, 
mainly the older ladies. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 10th of April 1710, when the 179 Copyright Act known as the Statute of Anne came into force, allowing authors to hold exclusive rights to their works for a fixed period after death. Also on the 10th of April, but in 1973, some 108 people, mostly women, were killed when a plane that left Bristol Airport on a day's shopping trip to Switzerland ploughed into a snowy hillside on its landing approach at Basel. On the 11th of April, 1148, St Augustine's Abbey, later to become Bristol Cathedral, was formally dedicated. In 1954, US rock and roll pioneer Bill Haley and his band, The Comets, recorded the song Rock Around the Clock. Not only did this song do well in 1954, but it was also re-released in 1960s and the 1970s. And something I've only just found out is that in 1964, Bill Haley and his Comets recorded a sequel song called Dance Around the Clock. On the 13th of April 1935, the first London to Australia commercial air service was inaugurated by Imperial Airways and Qantas. Also on the 13th of April, but in 1965, the Beatles record their single, Help. It appeared on their fifth studio album of the same name, as well as the soundtrack to their film, also called Help. And lastly, on the 14th of April, 1865, US President Abraham Lincoln was shot by assassin John Wilkes Booth while attending Ford's Theatre in Washington, D.C. He died the following day. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this rather dark part of history. And a huge thank you goes out to Bradley Stoke Radio's Henry Arnold, who played the part of John Horwood really well, don't you think? And let's not forget Emma Cleave, who played our victim. And this subject was chosen for today mainly because it's the 200th anniversary of John Horwood's death. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.